Hola, yo soy Margarita y estás escuchando Limehouse Podcast. This is Paddy Ashdown and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is. Hi, I'm Tom Brake and this is the Limehouse Podcast. Hello, this is Nick Clegg and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Because I'm not persuaded by the case for war. This is what positive politics can do. So, welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast. This is your liberal speakeasy. I hope you've been well. I've been pretty good. I'm pretty pumped, I've got to say. I I went down the laser quest on the weekend and uh, this isn't this is not laser quest sponsoring the show. Um we don't we don't have a sponsor for the show except for Rosie the dog. She's yeah, she gives us dog biscuits, but that's a that's another thing. I went down the old laser quest. It was incredible. Absolutely amazing. It kick-started my weekend in a way I wasn't expecting, let me tell you. I don't, you know, I didn't win. I, I thought I was going to, I'm not going to lie. I thought my laser accuracy was pretty incredible. And uh, how have you been? I hope you have been well. I'm, I mean, I, I've had some good chat with some people of, on the older Twitter this week. And um, also on Facebook, it's been good. It has been good. If you want to keep that coming, please feel free. It's at LimehousePod. And then we're on Facebook, and that's just the Limehouse podcast. So yeah, this week is it's a good chat. Uh, Norman Lamb, it's going to be good. I, I really, really enjoyed it. No, Norman is a normal human being. He's he's really deeply in, ingrained in in his work. He really believes in what he's doing, and and he's really he's held in such high regard from both sides of the house. Um, and and I think most people would say that the work that he did in coalition was um, was really important, you know. And and I think what he's doing, trying to drive on um, initiatives like um, mental health um, first aid in in the workplace, is really really important. You know, people that are suffering suffering at work, you're at work hours and hours and hours a week, right? You know, we're we're. We're born to do that, aren't we? Not born to do it. We're told from a very young age, you know, um, get a job and uh, and sit at your desk or whatever it is you want to do, and spend forty hours a week of your life doing it. Um, and then there's no real, there's no care, mental care there for anybody in terms of catching something at source, like a panic attack or if you're having an anxiety attack or something. And this was just his initiative to to help people that that suffer from from any any form of mental illness that there's someone in the office that can 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 you could go to and, and talk about it and they would have they would have the tools to at least help you uh, deal with the with the thing at the time at source whatever you're going through so yeah that that's a good chat we have we talk about his son um and what he he went through there and how he's learned and i think it is really important particularly in this day and age where a lot of people seem to think that politicians are very, very distant and, and you know, they're paid too much and uh, they're just, you know, they're not to be trusted. Uh, we can now realise, I think, after the debate in the House over Brexit and some of those incredible, passionate speeches by obviously the likes of, of, of Nick Clegg, but also David Lammy, Owen Smith in particular. These people, um, the, the, they're human beings and Norman Lamb is is an amazing one and 
and I think the way how much he how much he's been through um, him he and his son he and his his family um, they've got they've got enough experience there and people should be listening and he's got the drive and and he's got some amazing answers to it and it was a good chat and we um, I mean obviously I, I I wanted to talk about his his political um, awakening a bit more but I think we just we got stuck in it was really good it was really good it was really it's really nice to have someone so so human on the show uh, um yeah but i mean also just to reflect quickly how i mean how many shows have we done we've done a lot haven't we in the past few weeks you'll notice that bobby and elaine haven't been on recently they are very busy people um think things around this country are going crazy at the moment you know we've got two by elections um Stoke on Trent Central, Stoke on Trent Central, and then we've got one in, up in Copeland as well. So things are going a wee bit crazy. So that's probably why you haven't heard from those guys um, lately, and you won't hear from them for a little while longer because I'm off to Thailand, as as you well know. But I hope you've been listening back. Hope you've been enjoying the other shows. Doctor Mark Pack was fantastic. Got loads of feedback from that. That was that was something that was really cool. All the technical aspects of politics. Uh, you know, the good and good and bad things that the Liberal Democrats have done uh, in in uh, in terms of uh, campaigning and and how, how to win back a core vote. La 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 la. Very interesting though. Um, Nick Clegg, I've I've edited down that podcast, so it's just the Nick Clegg interview. Uh, I probably might do the same for Paddy Ashdown as well because that was a darn good chat. So yeah, I'm going to see. I'm going to say goodbye for now, but I will see you on the other side of this conversation. I really hope you enjoy it and yeah tell a friend share it review it on iTunes would be fantastic Uh, because you know we need we need to share the love you know trying to get the message out there and uh, enjoy yourself I really really did how did that how did that come about the the um, the cross-party initiative on the healthcare so uh, well, the origins of it, first of all, was that before the 2010 election, uh, our, we were confronted by, uh, you know, um, a complete impasse over social care funding, mm-hmm. and uh, it had been pushed into the long grass for years and years. There had been a Royal Commission in the late 90s under uh, the first Blair government, yeah. first parliament of the Blair government. Uh, no, no progress had been made. So I actually approached Andy Burnham and Andrew Lansley then and said yeah. we should try and work together. We met twice. Uh, we agreed to sort of draw up a statement of principles mm-hmm. with a view to initiating a process that would bind in all the parties to achieve an agreement on social care funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was then blown out of the water by the Tories sort of launching a death tax campaign against Labour in the run-up to the 2010 election. Course, and the whole that's thing, going back a while, my yeah. memory's not so hot. So. so the whole thing collapsed. Yeah. But I'd sort of tried to uh, adopt that type of approach, recognising that the sort of normal uh, political environment had not delivered results. And I think sometimes you get to a point where um, uh, partisan politics uh, you can see is not delivering a result. And in a way, it's where uh, the uh, the solutions are actually all quite complicated mm. and and difficult politically. So 
inevitably with the health and care issue it involves more money so parties tend to balk at you know um, uh, being straight with people about the need to raise taxes or uh, or raise money in another way yeah uh, you know no political party uh, has gone anywhere near suggesting an alternative to the NHS funding model you know social insurance or uh, or even private insurance the sort of American approach so you get this sort of conspiracy of silence no one says anything and so uh, although that initiative had failed I uh, felt very clearly as we approached the 2015 election that uh, no one was really confronting this and the truth was we didn't really confront it in a fundamental way in the general election. We came up with a way of raising another eight billion for the NHS. Yeah. We weren't saying anything about raising more money for social care. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we're not in a good place ourselves. Uh, the Tories had nothing uh, s- uh, substantial to offer. <coughs> they matched us on the eight billion. In fact, they yeah. tried to claim it was ten billion. Uh, and Labour... Uh, said nothing really at the 2015 election. So in that sort of environment, you think, well, you know, if this isn't delivering results, you've got to find another mechanism to deliver a result. And so I'm not really doing this to score party political points. I, I genuinely think that you need to find a mechanism to a, to deliver a result. And I think if you created a process uh, in where you bind in political parties uh, and people uh, had the confidence that that process was designed to lead to a conclusion, I think it would give politicians the space to level with the public, to, you know, uh, confront with the public the difficult choices we've got to make and then come up with a solution. That's all I think a lot of people were so, um, I mean, the background of Brexit, everything gets silenced, not completely, but I think that's what people want, is just a transparency, especially when it comes to the NHS. Yeah, I agree. No, I I mean, uh, there was only one MP that I approached who said no. Uh, Jeremy Hunt, surely. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I mean, obviously I approached people outside government. but every Tory I approached, I mean, obviously I targeted my effort at those who I thought would be sympathetic, yeah. but every Conservative MP I approached said yes. Uh-huh. And since we launched it, four more Conservative MPs, five more in fact, have come forward to say, I'm interested, can you add me in, can you tell me more, or whatever. So, uh, And I'm told that there are many more Conservative MPs who are very sympathetic yeah. to the initiative. And then on the Labour side, fascinatingly, because, um, you know, uh, this has been an issue that Labour feel they own. And and so there's a, you know, there's a likely to be a reticence to, you know, give up the issue um, well, yeah, uh, I mean, on a partisan basis. And yet, um, you know, eight Labour MPs readily signed up to the initiative. Well, yeah, that's good. Tribalism is sort of, for once, is uh, stepped aside, mm. which is fantastic. Yeah. So just um, just a bit of your background, because, mm. you know, obviously I've done... You, I suppose you're definitely one of the people that I admire in terms of uh, your approach to health care, and particularly because of your background. Um, you, you know, you do have an emotional attachment to mental health and what have you. Um, 
But how did you, when did it first start for you? When was the, I always, I always ask this question, but I'm just going to stick mm. to it. But when did the fire for you start? When was the political um, awakening to get involved in, in um, mental health, but also uh, social care and that sort mm. of thing? When did that start? Well, so uh, as I tried to win the seat in North Norfolk um, back in the 90s, yeah, it's um, that partridge territory, but it's, it is, isn't it, Alan Partridge? It, it is, yeah. uh, sort of, yeah. North I Norfolk. Mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and it, there was North Norfolk Radio, I think. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah, so that, yeah. and there is a North Norfolk Radio. <laughs> um, so as I campaigned to win the seat, uh, health issues were very prominent, and I found myself naturally sort of campaigning on those issues. Was this 2001? Well, um, that was when I finally won, but I stood first in 92. Okay, I'm sorry, yeah. And then again in 97, and finally broke through in 2001 against, I mean, to start with, a 15,500 Tory majority. So it was a case of breaking it down bit by bit. Um, So I I sort of became known, I suppose, a bit as a a health campaigner. Um, And then it was always dominant in the work I did as an MP on but the... Why, but why health though? I mean... Is well, that... I, I mean, it, in a way it was very relevant to my constituency. Yeah. It's an elderly constituency. Um, so health and care issues are of acute importance to people. It's very rural, so often there's significant dif- distances involved to get to access to healthcare. Yeah. Um, so, and I don't know, I just sort of instinctively um, uh, found it an issue I was comfortable with and, and, and cared about. Um, then, you know, s- quite a long time after getting elected here, so I was elected in 2001, and it was 2006 or seven um, when I was appointed Shadow Secretary of State for Health. Um, but I then started to sort of develop my ideas about you know how things could be better organised and um, and what the priorities were. Were there uh, any sort of injustices that you could just see, just flag immediately, and you were like, "That is that is wrong. I'm going to tackle that head on." So yeah, I mean, and this was um, before really we got into. Uh, great difficulties with our son. So I, there, were, there were two things happening. There was, I was developing a sort of professional interest and I could see that um, Labour, when they were in power, rightly introduced maximum waiting times in the NHS. And it had a dramatic effect at uh, reducing the amount of time people had to wait to get their operations. Yeah. And the first uh, debate I'd done as a new MP in 2001 had been on orthopaedic waiting times in Norfolk okay. uh, and people waiting two or three years for treatment. Uh, so it was really needed, but they left out mental health. And so I, I uh, wrote a pamphlet in before the 2010 election uh, and one of the things was about maximum waiting time standards in, uh, in mental health. Yeah. Um, and and then sort of scroll forward. So I sort of developed my a sort of professional interest in mental health as one of the elements of a, an improved health and care system. Uh, then we started to experience mental ill health within our family in quite a profound way. Uh, and w- when you have that personal experience, it informs your thinking inevitably. And but it also meant that you know anyone who came to talk to me about 
the struggles that their family was going through, um, it struck a chord and, and, and it made me feel, well, um, I suspect what you're saying is absolutely true because that's what we've been through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what was, you know, I think particularly poignant was that we, we were confronted by having to wait six months for treatment at one point um, when Archie was 18 or 19. And uh, it, the bottom line was that, you know, we couldn't wait that long, so we got, we paid for treatment. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and we've subsequently paid for treatment for him. Um, but how can you justify a situation where people who have the money can get access to treatment, but those who haven't got the money are left waiting? Yeah. Uh, so that sort of sense of injustice um, made me uh, very driven to uh, sort of try to improve things. Then I suddenly find myself as the minister responsible uh, at a very, very difficult time because, you know, the funding settlement uh, under the coalition government was the tightest in the history of the NHS. And that uh, was in 2000 Well, I, w I was appointed in uh, 2012, September yeah, okay. 2012. Yeah. So all the big decisions about fi financing and funding of the NHS and the social care had already been taken before I ever got there. <coughs> um, and, you know, we did, public finances did have to be got under control because they were ratcheting massively out of control. Um, but whenever the finances are tight, mental health always loses out. Um, you know, it's sort of almost as clear as night follows day. And, and actually, um, what Labour had done during the years of plenty when the money was flowing into the NHS, they'd introduced these maximum waiting time standards in physical health, and they'd introduced a system whereby the money followed the patient in physical health. So every time a patient went to hospital, as they tried to bring the waiting list down, um, every time an extra patient went to the hospital, more money went into that hospital. So if you have a defined budget, and more and more money is getting sucked into acute hospitals as they bring the waiting times down, something has to give, and so mental health gets trimmed. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a sort of institutional bias against mental health. And as, as when I became minister, I sort of realised this with a vengeance, that... The, 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 it, this is a discrimination against mental health within the NHS um, and uh, and so I sort of set about trying to confront that and to rather than to be a sort of government spokesperson uh, trying to just reassure people that everything was fine I sort of felt myself being an advocate for mental health in government and so I would frequently say this is not acceptable you know we can't tolerate this yeah. and, and I would you know often challenge both services but also government and, and NHS England about some of the decisions that were being taken. So when you you say you know you're battling with with the the in the coalition and then obviously with, with the Labour with the with the new Labour government does it how do you feel now I mean when Theresa May stands up and said we're going to give an extra 20 million to was it the was it NHS for social care or for mental health I can't quite remember but, but well, in her speech a fortnight ago, she said um, an extra fifteen million for um, for I think crisis cafes. She described. So, how does that feel to you? Because I mean, for me personally, that feels like a bit of an insult. I mean, fifteen million quid. You know, that's mm. like the equivalent of, of of giving me a cup of tea when I'm having an anxiety attack. 
Yeah, so uh, my reaction to that speech was twofold, really. I think, first of all, I think you should we should be just open in uh, welcoming a Prime Minister talking about mental health. Mm. It's never happened before. Uh, in a way, the breakthrough was Nick Clegg as Deputy Prime Minister talking about mental health. And that was seen as a big breakthrough. It, that, I mean, it, we have to think about the revolution we've gone through in the last 10 years from a hidden illness which no one talked about. The press wasn't interested, the media would never cover it, uh, to a Deputy Prime Minister going out and talking about it quite often and doing a big speech at an event with me about suicide, mm -hmm. uh, to now the Prime Minister talking about uh, mental health. Uh, so I welcome that, yeah. um, but if you're uh, open and honest about the scale of the injustice, which she was, and she spoke quite powerfully about, you know, the burning injustices in society, it seems to be once you're open about it, you've got to have a policy response that meets the scale of that injustice, and that's where it falls short because the rhetoric isn't matched by action. So do we need a white paper on this? Is, has the government su uh, applied, uh, supplied one? Or uh, uh, well, I think, you know, there's a danger of just, you know, uh, constantly reinventing the wheel. One, yeah, uh, the other, yeah. I think to a large extent we know what to do. Uh, there's lots of evidence about the power and impact of early intervention. Yeah. Uh, we produced a, uh, a, a blueprint for the modernisation of children's mental health services in March 2015, just before the election, called Future in Mind. It was very widely welcomed. They don't have to reinvent that, just implement it. Yeah. And make sure that the money that Nick Clegg secured, the 1.25 billion extra investment in children's mental health, is actually spent on children, uh, mm. rather than being diverted elsewhere in the NHS. Yeah. I mean, my, my you know, obviously, I, I, your your son uh, suffers uh, or suffered suffers ongoingly with um, OC, OCT. Yeah, My, I mean, um, I, I I was I, I was recently I read a, an article in the Guardian a quite a while ago now that really struck me because I suffered from what I didn't realise was OCD but was called pure O. And right, I and I, I don't know if you've heard that. it. No. So pure O is a form of OCD. Which is which isn't the physical form mm. of OCD. Mm. So you're having to touch stuff yeah. and wash your hands and all that. You know everything that is uh, attributed with, mm. with it. Um, this is so it's very in, in very intrusive thoughts yeah. that about you know uh, sexual thoughts that. You well, that's exactly what about. Archie. I mean, it's yeah. it's violence or sex or yeah. whatever. It's difficult issues. Yeah. But you can't escape from them. It's it dominates your entire life. But you see, I that's why I I feel personally like those kind of uh, mental health issues that uh, you're either taking to the workplace which I'd like to touch on in just a minute mm. about your um, first aid uh, mm. mental health programme, which is an idea which is fantastic. Um, but I feel that's why it's hard to talk about. You know, if, if Theresa May gets up and starts talking about Puro in, in, uh, or OCD and, mm. and how it really does impact so many mm. hundreds of thousands of people, um, that's kind of why it's put to the back of the agenda. Do, can you see anything happening uh, in the next few years where we openly... Openly, so I know you said Theresa May is doing a bit of a, you know, she's mm. coming up on it, doing her best, should yeah. I say. Um, but can you can you see three or four years time this being a recognised thing? OCD isn't just washing your hands; it's this, it's that, and 
and what yeah happened. well I think I think we're on a journey as a society so as I said 10 years ago hidden away from view conspiracy of silence no one talked about it uh, now it's it's much more out in the open there's still a long way to go quite often we trivialize uh, particular conditions through ignorance not to uh, do people down people mm. often talk about being a bit OCD-ish because all they think about is you know being a bit obsessively tidy uh, uh, or going through sort of rituals that um, that don't really uh, have any impact on your life and that, that's what <coughs> people mean when they say a bit OCD-ish they don't realize what real full-blown OCD is like uh, and but it's a punishing mm. cruel condition yeah. uh, and and I always think that in a way it's one of the uh, cruelest of mental health conditions in that you uh, in every other way you uh, function as a normal individual and so you're conscious of this uh, as I mean, as Archie said to me, uh, why am I the only person who's going mad? That's how, as a teenager, he felt. But he was conscious of it. It wasn't like he was in a, you know, um, in a different place from mm. from us. It, it, uh, it, he he had to cope with these um, as a as an otherwise rational human being. He had to cope with these very dark thoughts constantly as you're trying to grow up with all the other pressures you're under as well. Yeah. Uh, so little wonder, you know, he was excluded temporarily from school and used to, you know, it wasn't the great, greatest student at school. and He was just trying to keep it together. Yeah, and, uh, you know, um, and then, you know, the danger is you then start to, as very many people do, you resort to drugs or alcohol. Mm. Um, and the comorbidity there is enormous. Uh, you know, people who experience both mental ill health and potentially end up with addictions. Um, now with Archie, he's got to a much better place yeah. uh, and he's doing uh, brilliantly these days. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm very proud of the fact that he went on television, he's been on television twice, talking about his experience. Yeah, that's great. Um, because I think every time someone um, goes out and speaks about it, uh, it makes it just that little bit easier for somebody else to yeah. get help. Uh, and so I think that's all part of the process that we're going through. So I think in some respects I'm optimistic that mm -hmm. this is something that's emerging from the darkness. But uh, we are so far away from matching the rhetoric with the reality. Uh, and, and it does, I'm afraid, involve more investment. Yeah. Um, we also need to spend the money more effectively, yeah. focusing more on prevention, um, catching things earlier. Uh, but the bottom line is we need to increase the investment. And just, I know we've only got a few more minutes, but um, so I read today that uh, Jeremy Hunt's threatening to uh, leave the EMA, uh, the um, European, European Medicines, Medicines Agency. Agency. Yeah. Um, what's that, realistically, what's the impact of that on our country? If we do leave, well, I think it's absolutely extraordinary. Uh, uh, it, I can't see, f you know. I put, I think, if, if if I tried to sort of put myself into the position of, you know, a Brexiteer, someone who, you know, is desperate to escape from the European Union, 
I can't understand why you wouldn't want to cooperate on medicines approvals. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. it just seems like a no-brainer to me that um, the pharmaceutical companies will always go for the biggest markets. Their their commercial operations, when they have a drug that they've seen through clinical trials, they will go for the biggest markets first, where yeah. where they will make the biggest return on that investment they've made. So typically now they go for the US market and the European market in close succession. If we come out of the EMA, uh, which is the approval mechanism for drugs across the whole of the EU, uh, then the danger is we get pushed back um, in the queue. And so there's a real risk, it seems to me, that uh, British patients get slower access to new medicines than others uh, across Europe and that just makes no sense at all no. quite apart from the fact that I think it's something like 900 jobs uh, in London uh, based yeah. in uh, EMA based in London yeah. now we may lose that anyway um, but uh, I can't see the reason to leave the EMA it just seems a nonsense to me but that would be cherry picking for us to stay in EMA yeah so. uh, but we have the you know I mean Theresa May has talked about a you know, a bespoke deal for the UK and the EU. Well, if you're going for a bespoke deal, then it seems to me absolute common sense that we should have unified uh, medicine approval uh, uh, mechanism for the whole of Europe. Yeah, but the way we're going right now... <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> it's a high-wire act, and but there are very yeah. big risks for patients for the NHS, um, quite apart from the jobs we'll lose from this country. Okay. Uh, mental health first aid, that's at the workplace, obviously. Um, where did it come about and what, you, what have you achieved with it? So I was first approached by Kirsten Johnson, a former Lib Dem parliamentary candidate, who raised the idea with me of uh, uh, changing the rules in workplaces so that uh, companies had responsibilities for their staff's mental health uh, as well as their physical health. So that would require a change to the uh, first aid regulations that uh, apply to companies. And we talked about this to Mental Health First Aid England and uh, we've had a meeting very recently with the minister responsible uh, in the department uh, for work and pensions. And uh, I think there's a chance of this being considered. Uh, I have no idea whether we will succeed, but I think it's uh, there's a very powerful case for treating mental health and physical health equally yeah. uh, for the first time in terms of the regulations that apply to companies. And, you know, someone could just as easily suffer a mental health crisis, a, a panic attack, for example, in the workplace. And shouldn't people within that workplace have the skills to support that person just as much as they support someone who's fallen over. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a powerful idea, uh, but I think there's loads more we should do with employers and mental health. And I've chaired a commission on mental health in the West Midlands, and one of the ideas that we want to trial is what we're calling a well-being premium, where you give a discount on business rates to a company uh, and in return for the discount, the company commits to uh, doing you know, evidence-based uh, interventions that we know will have an in impact in terms of reducing sickness absence, yeah. uh, addressing the problem of presenteeism in the workplace. 
stopping people falling out of work with uh, because of ill health. Yeah. And I think if we can trial that over a two-year period and build up the evidence for uh, what works, then uh, we could have a real impact in getting companies much more engaged in the well-being of their workforce. Yeah, because after all, you know, you spend more time at work than you do at home. Yeah. And that's where you're experiencing, if you've got a suffering from mental illness, that's where you're going to be experiencing Absolutely. the most. Yeah. So... That's Norman Lamb's chat with me. Really, really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. I hope you got something out of it. Um, I'm going to try and get to, to Norman back on the show at some point. And also, you know, it's important to say thank you to his team as well because I think they were absolutely lovely, looked after me really well and made the whole whole thing really, really smooth and easy. Uh, yeah, what's coming up? I've got an interview with Jonathan Bartley. Uh, it's, it's done. It's dusted. I'm going to stick it up there for you. I hope, I hope you enjoy it. It's going to be next week that that comes out. He's the co-leader of the Green Party. He's he's, he's got some fantastic ideas, uh, as, as you know, as does Caroline Lucas, uh, who's the other co-leader of the party. It was it was good to get an idea of um, of, of of like like-minded people. You know, I think uh, he and I shared a lot of we share a lot of, of common ground, a lot of, of values, which obviously. A lot of liberal, liberal Democrats will look to Caroline Lucas and Jonathan Barkley and go, yeah, that makes sense. Um, maybe we'll come from slightly different angles, but essentially there, there's not an awful lot to, to disagree on, especially when we're talking Trump and especially when we're talking Brexit. So we, we touched on those two subjects quite keenly. Um, and his background as well, because he's, he's in his rock and roll, you see, he's into his rock and roll. He's a drummer, like me. I used to, you know, bang the drums. He still bangs them, he still tours. It's unbelievable. What... A, what a dude! What a legend! So, um, I hope you, I hope you get something from it. But yeah, I'm, I'm hoping maybe you guys are gonna go back and have a listen to some of the other podcasts, or um, if you haven't had a chance yet, because there are quite a few to get through. Uh, might I recommend the Nick Clegg interview that I've edited down for for you guys to, to listen to? So there's there's no chat on any other subjects. It's just just me and Nick, and that's for about 20, 25 minutes. It's a good one. It's a good one. I enjoyed it. And then Paddy Ashdown. Have a listen to that one. Elaine and I, Elaine Bagshaw and I, have a little preamble, which is, is pretty damn interesting as well. So there's so much to get involved with, and I, I hope you do. Uh, and please give us a share and a shout out on on iTunes. Uh, leave a review there. That that is it's ridiculous how far that actually goes. It's amazing how much of, of an impact that actually has. Um, and then obviously give us a shout out on Facebook or on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is at Limehouse Pod. But yeah, and if you've got any spare time. Why not check out the the New European? It, this isn't a plug for them. They haven't asked me to do this. I'm just doing this because I think it's a really great uh, paper that you can get. You can get it in London and uh, and elsewhere, Manchester. You can uh, subscribe as well. And they, they'll obviously deliver it. And uh, God, imagine that a newspaper a newspaper being delivered to your very door. But yeah, so the new the new European tangent over. Nick Clegg featured not Nick Clegg. Tim Farron features on page eight this week and it's really good it's, he's uh he's justifying and standing up for um john burkow and his um obviously his well-known um his well-known stance on donald trump uh, and not allowing that man into the house of commons if he's got to come into the country please dear god not there though so yeah that's a really interesting read i, I don't know how where you stand on that i'm not gonna 
say you're good or bad either way i just think it's a really good read um and it's worth worth checking out and then i think there's a really good piece by caroline lucas as well um and then she talks she talks fantastically about um the the the, the situation of, of last week in in the house of commons where every single amendment was railroaded and destroyed and completely ignored uh and it's and it's it's pretty scary pretty scary stuff and she sort of filters through it all quite nicely i mean obviously there's a ton of stuff on trump as well and it's and it's all a fantastic read and the front cover is amazing i've got it obviously in my hand you can hear it isn't that eh? that's pretty good ink it's good ink I've, I've tested it out you can rub it on your face and it doesn't come off you know no no risk of, sort of ink poisoning on on this one it's got a barcode um it's got a barcode it's got trump's face on the front with a barcode under under his nose uh as if it were a a, a tash uh, representing or um mimicking uh someone from the past uh, i wonder who that could be anyway thanks so much for tuning in like i said i'll be back next week with, with, with jonathan bartley and then who knows after that whatever i've got a few more interviews i can load up for you guys Email the show, drop us a line, let me know what you're doing, what you're thinking. If you want an issue raised, to, we, I can talk about uh, with my with my panel. And also, um, perhaps I can give to future MPs or maybe what, an MP you would like me to talk to. As always, the Limehouse podcast at gmail.com. So yeah, stay safe. Enjoy yourself in life. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Be kind rewind and i will see you very soon goodbye good day good evening <laughs>